Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 88 of the podcast. Today I'll be talking with David Lindsay, Emeritus Professor. His book, Scientific Writing Equals Thinking in Words, was published by Cyro Press in 2020. This is the book's second edition. Write up. Thus, the phrasal verb preferred by scientists of all stripes when they mean put the hard researching into cold black letters. Now, I cannot think of any other word better chosen if your intention is to gall and irk a person who works in English for academic purposes or in composition studies. This little up at the back of right really raises the hairs on the backs of communication people's necks. And it once was the same for me. Hair-raising. But today I don't find that up all that bad. No worse, anyway, than all the other imprecise and make-do terms we use when helping researchers communicate. Writing process, metacognition, higher-order concerns, non-directive tutoring strategies. I don't know about yourself, but I have never really experienced the writing I do as Latinate processus, progression, course, because actually I just feel like I'm thinking before my eyes. But be that as it may, the real thing that's occurred to me to not hate write-up is simply this, a change of perspective. I no longer see communicational services to researchers as instructional in nature, but rather I see such services as collaborative in nature. And with that perspective change directing my eyes at what researchers are doing when they are doing the communication, Well, then I notice, very well in fact, how indeed they are writing it up. And in doing so, and in saying so, researchers are in fact foregrounding the communication, perhaps more so than they realize themselves, but certainly much more so than we communication people have noticed. Here's how. In the clause of English, the normal spot for new information is final position. For example, they wrote the manuscript, Their paper has received many citations. That team have gained a reputation for solid research. So in these examples, that is, the new information, the manuscript. In the sentence, they wrote the manuscript. The new information, many citations. In the sentence, their paper has received many citations. And the new information, a reputation for solid research. In the sentence, that team have gained a reputation for solid research. The thing these examples demonstrate is that the heaviest informational load will normally be placed at the end of the clause. So, in the example they wrote the manuscript, they and wrote are, let's say, more recoverable from the topic of discourse or from the situation of discoursing than is the phrase, the manuscript. And likewise for the other two examples, their paper, has received, are more recoverable than many citations that team, and have gained, are more recoverable than a reputation for solid research. So the more recoverable bits and clauses are presumed, set a little to the side, if you like, so that the writer can proceed toward the new information, and this new information is given a place in the clause which enjoys a particular level of prominence. We call that prominence, at the end, information focus. Those last four phrases in the example sentences, the manuscript, many citations, a reputation for solid research, 
These phrases closing out the clause close it out prominently. And so these phrases carry the information focus. So all this about information focus, well, it's good to know, but what's it got to do with the verb write up? Well, this. If we say they wrote up the manuscript, we continue to maintain the information focus on the product of writing the manuscript. But let's say the interesting bit in our context of discourse is not the product, but actually the producing itself, the very act of writing. How do we arrange things in the clause to achieve that sort of information focus? Well, we would have to move the verb, or in this case enough of the verb anyway, to that position of prominence, to the end of the clause. Not hard to do with that little up there to help. They wrote the manuscript up. But it's impossible to do if the up is missing. They the manuscript wrote? So when authors say to you that they're currently writing it up, they are indeed construing the act of research into words as the new information, as the very thing for you, the listener, to heed as important and interesting. And does any of this really come as any surprise? I mean, just think. Pretty much every research article takes the same shape and size as a product. But pretty much no research project, not even by the self-same authors, takes the same shape and size as a producing of the research communication. In short, written products resemble one another practically in disproportion to the way writing productions do not resemble one another. Any listing of search results in Google Scholar will present articles that look all pretty much alike. But none of those 10 or 20 teams of authors went through the same text-producing act to achieve those articles. And it's my belief that authors in the sciences are acutely, if subconsciously, aware of this fact. The writing up is one leg of the race in and of itself. The writing up is the producing of sections of text which will eventually deserve publication. This writing act stands enough apart for it to warrant the information focus of any utterance it happens to make the topic of. For example, we've just got to write it up. Or, the trick is going to be how to write all this up. Or, who's going to polish the sentences once we've written this up? Scientists, it turns out, are paying tribute to the communication when they write up. And that is a fact which we communication people will do well to acknowledge. Okay, but why this pulling apart of verbs at the head of today's interview with David Lindsay, author of the book Scientific Writing Equals Thinking in Words? Well, really my reason is this little up in write-up. Researchers write it up, so they are in the act of making sense of their research findings and simultaneously in the act of adding communicational pointedness to their research findings. Good. Now, Note David's title to his book, Scientific Writing Equals Thinking in Words. It's a brilliant title, making a foundational statement, an equation really, a ground truth about the act of writing up in science. Writing is thinking in words. Now earlier I'd said that the term writing process didn't suit me. I said thinking before my eyes captured the thing better, to my imagination anyway. Well, it would appear that David concurs, because to bring out a title like that, Scientific writing equals thinking in words really lays the informational load squarely on the right-hand side of things, on the thinking, on the words. I have heard scientists be called professional writers. 
Well, let science itself be called professional writing. There, in both the professional of the writer and in the profession of the writing, there I think we have certainly one true-to-life description of what it actually means to be doing research. The scientist thinks, the scientist writes the thinking up in words. That is the information focus, because that is what researching is. So let's begin today's episode, David Lindsay and Scientific Writing Equals Thinking in Words. Hi, David. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hello, Dan, and thank you very much for, uh, for uh, arranging an interview with me. Very good. Yeah. Um, maybe to get us started, uh, as I was reading your book, I, 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 I noticed two levels going on. Um, and just to broach those briefly here, I noticed that you have a lot of experience helping people write better. Secondly, you offer in the book tons of fantastic evidence and and and, and advice on how people can do that. So I thought uh, perhaps we could begin with your own experience side. Um, I know that, uh, as you've shared with me, this is experience that goes back many years and has enriched your practice of offering workshops and providing guides, such as, as the book that we have in today's interview. Um, perhaps you might sketch out for readers how it is that you found your way from science into science communication. Uh, by an absolute, uh, absolute uh, accident, in fact, because I was like most writers, not really, most authors, I mean, uh, sorry, most scientists, um, thinking that writing was just one of those uh, bits and pieces you have to do as a bit of a chore, and really research is what I'm here about. And uh, there are a lot of people who actually avoid uh, the, the subjects that involve that we think about as being involving in writing, like like literature and things like that, in their in their school days, because they were much better at science, and so they avoided writing, and therefore writing was something totally secondary to the to the whole business of of, of doing research. But and um, it, it it turned out that I, as as dean of the faculty, um, some years into my career uh, as a researcher, um, had to find somebody to give a little course, a little unit uh, called um, scientific communication, which turned out to be pretty well a, a, a grammar course uh, and really was relatively useless. But I thought I, I, the, the person who was giving it uh, left very suddenly and I had to find somebody to uh, replace that person. And uh, in the end, I couldn't find anybody. So I thought, well, I'll do it myself. And that was at that point that I began to see the relationship that you've just been talking about, the, the very strong relationship between uh, writing and the necessity to be a good writer when you're a researcher um, and not uh, keeping the two things apart. In fact, nowadays I keep telling people, you don't think of yourself as a scientist, think of yourself as, a, as you have put it, as a professional writer. And the only reason you're doing research is to get new material for your next publication. And that actually puts the, the emphasis, in, in my view, in the right place about where writing fits in the, in the, uh, in the scientific process. It, it, it's it's, it's the, um, the ultimate um, part of your research uh, and not something that is something that you do in your spare time if you have some uh, at the end of the time. And 
the reason that I'm not in a, 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 a um, an old people's home and still um, uh, helping people write research uh, papers is that uh, there are very few people who do it relatively, uh, and 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 most people say, but what you're saying is got there's absolutely no rocket science or anything. But I never thought about it this way, uh, and that really was the basis of the of the uh, of the book I wrote and what I. Uh, wanted to say within that book. It's it, yeah, it's 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 also very interesting that you say uh, not rocket science, but uh, never really thought of it that way. That's been precisely my um, as my listeners listeners will know. I, I I'm in, based in southern Germany and help scientists write. Um, so we're doing much the same work um, from different angles, uh, assuredly, but um, probably with similar results. But that's been just my experience as well. That um, it takes such little movement on our end, such little uh, sort of to get the ball rolling for scientists to improve their communication, to understand why they're doing it and so on. It doesn't take all that much. It's 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 like they're extremely ready for it. It's just that, as you say, they, they never really looked at it quite that way. And they don't know what to do. They, 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 uh, they, uh, I keep telling the people in front of me that that um, they have probably spent somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 formal hours um, honing up their scientific skills to the, the extent that they are now um, uh, scientific researchers. And of those 2,000 to 3,000 formal hours, how many were spent talking about or thinking about how you actually are going to convey this research to the rest of the world because if if you don't, you actually haven't done it. Uh, the only way you can tell the rest of the world what you've done is actually through writing. Uh, you can go to a conference somewhere and, and, and get a, a tiny fraction of people to recognise that you're doing some work, but the, almost entirely um, your way of telling people that you actually exist, let alone what you've done, is through the writing. So you've got to get good at writing, and that's that's uh, that suddenly stirs people up a little bit, um, and uh, uh, we kick off from there. Yeah, I mean, just just your uh, example of sure at a conference you can reach some people and so on, but I think. Just to sort of paint out that image, okay, so what happens after the conference? Maybe you spoke to 300 people, you know, I mean, that's not impossible. But now you're reliant on a number of factors which are more or less chance-related. A, you have to hope that a portion of those people, let's say 10% of them, actually go on to talk about what you talked about. And B, you have to be certain that secondhand, they communicate it accurately, I mean, if anyone's ever played Chinese whispers, they're pretty sure that that's not going to work out very well, is it? That's correct, yes. Um, A a number of the things that you say about your own sort of uh, CV, where you're coming from and how you got into the work that you're doing at the moment, really resonate with what I've heard with so many of the people who have gotten into the area of English for academic purposes or, let's say, basically assisting scientists in writing is the fact that it was a bit of an accident. Um, I had a, a, a editor of a journal, Christoph Bernard, on here from Inserm, 
And he also said much the same, just as one example, that, um, you know, he was deep in the research and the publishing to him was a black box until one day through peer reviewing, he got a bit more involved in it. And the rest was history until he ended up founding one of his own research journals. But this was all on the job and all by chance. There was there was nothing that led him to being in the communication side of his research. No, well, that's 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 correct. Uh, there, there, there was a paper, and I can't remember the author because the paper was written fairly badly. But, but nonetheless, it it talked about uh, uh, engineers in America, and uh, he interviewed them and and um, asked uh, how they got into engineering and uh, were they happy with with uh, where they are in engineering. And what he found was that that uh, most uh, young engineers were fairly happy because they were building bridges or creating widgets or do what do whatever engineers do and so on but as time went on they got more and more involved in uh, writing uh, uh, um, submissions for things and uh, writing up um, uh, the the results of whatever they did and um, then they got further and further up the line and they got out of building out of the bridge building and uh, and and, and uh, widget making uh, and got in behind a desk, and most of the senior engineers, and this was in the United States, the most of the senior engineers were saying, we are now in a position where the only thing we do is the very thing that we actually did engineering to avoid, that is, we're doing writing. And uh, <laughs> most of them were, were pretty disgruntled about it, which I thought was a very interesting uh, uh, phenomenon that they'd... they'd uh, uh, that writing had come to them uh, as uh, it, it, by bashing them on the head, rather than they're realizing that it was an integral part of of their development. Yeah, and 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 I very much agree with your assessment there of the fact that this probably goes back to early years. You know, I mean, already in high school, people are heading in the direction of language or non-language, and um, this is something I've I've discussed with other uh, guests on the podcast, and it, it seems to be a fair assessment of what goes on early. But even later, undergraduate and 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 postgraduate career. Um, where the realization sets in that your advancements, the progress of your scientific career, if you're going to stay in the lab, for instance, and perhaps not go out into industry, where the realization sets in that that's going to depend on your publication record, it still doesn't necessarily improve things. It still doesn't make it so that researchers are either A, trained better in communication, or B, take the initiative to do so themselves, because in a sense, yeah, they don't know which lever to pull or where to even begin. I think what I... What I would, what I would probably just follow up that comment with, and, and and I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about it, is is your own words on how you initially viewed um, communication in science and your first attempts at teaching that course that you mentioned when you became dean of uh, the agricultural school. Um, you said that well, it's. Um, Basically, English grammar anyway, isn't it? Uh, but you said then, I soon realized, and I'm quoting here, I soon realized that grammar was only a minor component. Logic, fluency, a way of thinking about what readers of scientific literature are looking for, those became so much more the focus, and they were integral to the whole scientific process. And they were not taught as being part of of, um, of the scientific process. I, I mean, we, we have a lot of 
uh, talk these days about the the STEM system and so on. We've got to get more kids to be to be uh, uh, involved in the STEM subjects, the science and uh, whatever the other things, the technology and so on. Uh, we but uh, nowhere do they say uh, within that that uh, process is that we should be in fact telling people uh, how to communicate their their STEM. Um, uh, achievements at all, and so I think we're, we're scientists are actually getting far worse press now than they did say twenty years ago, um, simply because the people who who are, are not scientists but people who give opinions rather than give uh, uh, material based on evidence, uh, which scientists are trained to do. And, and feel very, very awkward about uh, giving opinions um, in case they're wrong. Uh, uh, scientists um, deal in hypotheses, uh, which are really expectations of, of what might happen if they, if they uh, do a, uh, or test their hypotheses out in a certain way. Um, they, uh, but that, that doing those... Um, uh, hypotheses means that you, you're a bit of a cynic. You're really you're really challenging the known information all the time, and people who challenge the known information are always hesitant about it because they might be wrong. Um, but there's nothing wrong. Good scientists know that there's nothing uh, bad about being wrong if the known information is all the information you have, and you've made a you've made a, a an informed. Uh, uh, opinion about where it might go, and you and you do an experiment to test it, um, and it doesn't go that way. You've advanced science because the logic that was so right before you did your bit of work um, is clearly wrong. And when you, then you challenge the logic using the evidence, and and science advances. Uh, unfortunately, um, that's the the way scientists think. But unfortunately, the rest of the uh, the, the community um, rather think that you've you've just made a mistake. You didn't think properly because when you did the experiment, it didn't come out the way you thought it was going to come out. Um, so so um, scientists then are, are uh, um, so almost pilloried, and, and we've seen that already with the uh, with the COVID. Uh, uh, the progression of the COVID thing, where we got a new, um, uh, completely new disease, if you like, uh, and people didn't know what was going to happen. They put up hypotheses about it. In some cases, they they the hypotheses were actually had they had to reject them. And so, you know, what are these scientists? They're not. They're not. Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Well, that's correct. They don't because. Because we don't know, and but we we do the work to find out what uh, we're, we're talking about, and to, and to be able to find the evidence that allows us to say it with some certainty. But we're scientists are always cynics, and uh, uh, whereas if we happen to be, let's say, dare I say, it, an economist or, or or something of that sort, when we can give an opinion, and um, and that's fine, and we can be much more. Uh, expansive about our opinions, and if we get it wrong, uh, nobody seems to take much notice of it. And therefore, the um, 
we see it all around the world, the, 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 the give and take, and not the give and take, the challenge between, between the, uh, keeping people healthy and, and keeping the economy running to the extent that the, by and large the economy has actually won most of, the, most of those battles uh, simply because uh, when you talk about the economy, you don't have to be right at all and nobody expects you to be right at the time. <laughs> Uh, with with the, and scientists are reluctant to say things because they they um, they, they it's it's likely they'd be wrong they'll they'll and, and that's what happened with with COVID we found out an enormous amount of COVID by by uh, putting up hypotheses that eventually were were rejected but we must form newer hypotheses and found out a lot more about COVID but. That process is not something that, um, that the general public likes, and uh, but scientists have therefore got to be able to to uh, be more open in their communication, and not so reluctant to sit back and say, "I, I people won't understand me, so I'm not going to say anything." Uh, now I'm talking a little bit here, not not in communicating science for other scientists, but communicating science for the for the uh, for the wider community. But it's interesting that the the um, uh, some of the great scientists were very good at communicating to the community, and and uh, I guess Einstein would be uh, was one of the the uh, uh, had one of his many many uh, interesting quotes where he said, "If you can't explain astrophysics to a barmaid, you probably don't know enough about astrophysics," uh, which means that. That uh, uh, if you can if you can think in terms of, of, of talking simply and not trying to bamboozle people uh, who, who know not much about science about science, you may uh, you may well be setting a foundation where you can actually communicate better with the people who do understand your science. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. A, a lot to be said that a lot to be that can be gained from what you're saying there about uh, Einstein's quote. Uh, mm. And I agree, he's he's just full of fantastic quotes. Uh, when it comes to bit, communicating to the lame, he was a little bit sexist. I think I don't know whether he'd go over so well in that in that area anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it's always hard to say something good about anyone, isn't it? I mean, really. <laughs> Uh, there's always some exception or some problem. But it, in any case, I mean, it, there's something even on the level of peer-to-peer, scientist-to-scientist communicating that can be gained from that approach of, okay, could I also communicate this to a layman? Or let's say somebody was asking like the basic sorts of questions of, okay, well, where does a cell begin and where does a cell end maybe in biology? Yeah, mm-hmm. Or what is at the heart of an atom and so on? I mean, if you... The kind of questions that, you know, in a room full of scientists just come across as the dumb questions, but it's usually the dumb questions that get people, you know, set people off to really examining what it is that matters. And and, and when it comes to scientist to scientist communication, the sort of gain that can be taken from that is it's so easy to hide, not even hide, hide is showing intention. It's so easy to get lost behind set terminologies yeah but if you take any dense pa- densely packed paragraph in any field or subdiscipline of science and you decide okay i'm going to unpack every one of these technical terms and see what they actually mean 
my guess is that at least half of them are going to get to a point where you can't quite be sure entirely which process you're describing anymore. And that shows up in the end in the communication, right? Yes, certainly. And, and uh, uh, it, it's, it's uh, 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 an interesting thing that you, you've said because I, I, I run – um, workshops that, that last for uh, four days or so where people actually bring their material and, and write it up. And I, I began doing that using uh, making sure that I had a number of people who were in a similar field so that they could support one another with the, with, the, with the technical stuff and so on. And we tried an experiment where we got some, some social scientists uh, and some uh, hard scientists, if you want to use that expression, a completely different uh, setup, and half of them were were from each camp, so to speak. And I thought I was going to have one lot going to sleep while the other lot were explaining what they were trying to say, and um, and, and and vice versa. What we found was that, in fact, both sides said it was so much better this way because the people on the other side asked these, as you put it, the dumb questions, and suddenly we began to realise that those questions weren't so dumb. They, and, in fact, we had, in trying to explain ourselves, were, were making great leaps in logic that, that we needed to, to fill in the gaps in order to make our, to be able to tell our story. And uh, uh, since that time, uh, I've endeavoured with groups of people who, who, um, who come together to do these writing workshops, try to get people as diverse as possible in them so that they can, they can ask those dumb questions and actually put people on the, on the, on the better track uh, for explaining it to their, to their um, uh, more um, to their colleagues, in fact, or the, their colleagues around the world through their writing. Um, and, uh, but I was I was amazed that that the it, that came from the from the uh, participants themselves, not not from me. It was uh, um, it was very salutary. Yeah, and and this is uh, also something that uh, from my area of uh, composition studies and writing studies that has been repeated elsewhere. There's very many people, Nigel uh, Kaplan, who I've had on the show, for instance, who's an expert in uh, English for academic purposes, mm. completely supports the view that you're talking about right now. That you learn through your practice of helping people uh, communicate research that you know the diverse audience is very likely to be highly supportive of somebody trying to communicate very specialized research. Um, this, this is one of those points where you start to realize that, again, in my area of writing studies, there's a divide in people's heads where if you're coming from the communication or the English background, you can only advance so far into the area of you know, astrophysics or microbiology or whatever because you don't know the content and it's long been my belief, well, actually much the opposite. You bring an enormous advantage because communication, since communication is really about, you know, knowing how a reader is going to interpret you, well, then you, you do yourself a service as the communicator, in this case, the researcher of, of building the most massive theoretical reader brain that you can through other people's feedback so that you really do understand how you're going to be interpreted from all angles. 
That's right. It, it's it's. I've said. Um, um, I, I listened with with great interest. Uh, you talked to Barbara Seneca, I think it was uh, quite recently, and and I listened to your podcast on that. And and uh, uh, she was talking and, and about um, the the two things: are you writing for a reader, or are you writing for for you for yourself? Um, I I tended to think that it was probably more important that you're writing for a reader. Uh, and you and you've got to understand the reader, and and that brought me to another person who I don't think you've interviewed yet, and you should, and that's Alan Alda. Have you have you uh, come across his book? I I haven't yet, but I am making a note as we speak. <laughs> because he's he's the fellow from Mash who 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 set up the Alan Alda. Uh, Institute, I think, of, of scientific communication at Stony Brook University in, in New York, and um, and he 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 he's actually an incredibly uh, smart fellow. I reckon he's, he's, I'm, I'm quite a fan of his. He says a lot of things that I I say as well, which of course makes him uh, <laughs> okay. Except that he says I'm so much better than I do <laughs> that I just I, I think he's quite quite marvellous. But what he says is. You don't tell people what you want to tell them in scientific communication. You don't tell people what you want to tell them. You tell them what they want to know. And that that subtle difference is virtually encapsulates everything because what you're doing as you're writing should be to keep telling them that this is something you ought to know about and do it in a way that's subtle enough and then deliver the the um, the the information that they are, they are suddenly expecting, um, uh, where they're expecting it, and at the same time delivering another expectation uh, for the next section of, of your writing, uh, and it, it makes the writing more fluent. It makes all sorts of things. But uh, uh, I think if you can get out there and out there and and, uh, and <laughs> interviewing, you'll get a very amusing but very very. Uh, insightful way of doing it because he said from his acting he said I you good actors really only think about the the, the, the person they're talking to uh, they they're, they're, they're trying to feed off the person they're talking to all the time uh, for the, they're anticipating how people will will respond to what they're saying next uh, and when they get very good at it they get very very subtle, but very, very good at at uh, at saying things, you know, in a way or with a, with an inflection that that that, uh, that makes them into good actors. In fact, but he's saying that's what you should be if you're going to be a good scientific writer as well. And he got all of that uh, apparently because he ran a ran a, um, a program for one of the uh, big channels in America on on science, uh, and he said. Most scientists, um, he, he interviewed them, and he said most scientists couldn't tell me what they wanted, what uh, what they were doing. Uh, anyway, that I didn't understand it, and he, started, he, he from that he gradually um, spent an enormous amount of money and, and, and effort to set up this thing in 2012 in, in Stony Brook University. But anyway, I'm talking about him now, but. Uh, not, not a bit of my book. No, well, I mean, what you say about him, I can see so well uh, the, the the connections and, and the inter, interconnections um, and the two philosophies. Uh, I mean, 
what you said earlier sounds just the same when you said that, uh, you know, science is about when you were talking about COVID, you know, science is about challenging our known information. It's about challenging the logic of what we draw off of that information. It's about the hypothesis, which I certainly want to come back to in a few moments. But I, I think if we could stay along with this idea of how to help research communication and, and your own experience in it, what I see, even when you're up at the undergraduate level and you're making, as you draw our attention to in chapter one, making that transition to the graduate or postgraduate level, you're, you're, you're not being prepared for that transition um, because essentially what you're being sold still, even at the university by the experts, is a bit of a picture of science that it's about knowing. It's about knowledge. It's about being informed. And I think very many undergraduate students, you know, get that sense that, and this is what Alan Alder was facing in later career scientists, you know, how much I know and how complex it all is. Whereas science is really about, as you say, in so many words, it's about doubting. (laughs) It's about challenging. And to doubt or to challenge alone well, that makes literally no sense, doesn't it? I mean, you, you don't do that. <laughs> you're doubting and challenging always inside of a community of people who care about the challenge that you're making or are invested in the doubt that you're raising. Exactly, yes. Yeah, and I, and I suppose where, where I was just leading that was this idea of that transition from undergrad to graduate. Um, what it is that needs to happen, because... I mean, I'll just float my own idea. I think communication needs to be emphasized and communication needs to be made authentic at the undergraduate level so that there's not this big bucket of ice water that hits people in the face when they go and do their PhD or publish for the first time and realize they're not writing a new chapter in a textbook. Yes, that's right. And and also uh, undergraduates, uh, tend to say when they write, if, say for for an examination or something or other, um, most uh, most um, examiners are seeking to find out whether this particular uh, uh, great uh, student is is uh, knows something about this subject. So if there's any semblance that they know something about the subject, they get a bit of a tick and they give them a mark. Um, and, and that's where it stands. And so they can write any sort of rubbish just as long as it, something bubbles out of it that seems to suggest they, they, they have a, a, a reasonable understanding or they, 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 they know the subject a bit is fine. But as soon as they get to the point of trying to do this in a scientific journal, um, in a learner journal, they suddenly realise that uh, they, can't, they can't just throw stuff together and, and hope that people will say, oh, yeah, I, I, I think I can see what you mean. They have to do it clearly and they, they, that's a transition they just don't make in most cases unless they uh, seriously go about uh, learning the techniques of doing that. And, and you make in that first chapter, which I found very aptly titled A Matter of Attitude, <laughs> rather a bold title to put at the front of a, a guide on scientific writing because I don't think very many scientists you know associate attitude with what they're what they're doing although they should um, but uh, this 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 attitude towards communication um, this this lack of the transition into the real world of science mm-hmm. it it's a 
as you as you portray it, really, it perpetuates poorly written literature, and. <laughs> This is because down the line, the majority of the scientists either reading or helping publish or writing the literature themselves are just not well adept in what it is exactly that they're doing. I'm not saying that they're bad writers. They could be excellent writers. One of the points of your book, it's not rocket science. It's not impossible. It's just a matter of getting a few principles down. But one of the things that I've started to notice is that when you... When you bring in these new principles, when you open up new perspectives, and when you offer suggestions as to how it might be done, how to make it clearer, for example, you get in some places a bit of a pushback, which I've started to notice has its motivation. Because this poorly written literature, this majority majority poorly written literature, has put in place a number of norms that readers have come to expect. It's almost like this sort of writing is the way that they've established standards and signals, however subpar they might be, for communicating their knowledge as they're then able to in that in, in that environment. So I wonder as, you know, help to research communication, what is it that we do with that phenomenon? Well, you're, you're right. Our, our, our problem is that, uh, uh, and I think I, I, I put in some statistics which I made up uh, and I didn't tell them that, uh, I don't. I think I put some statistics in there, but uh, I certainly made them up because I, I don't have the I don't have the figures. But I I, I suggest that about ten percent of people that I talk to uh, and I ask them, do you like writing? Uh, about ten percent of them sort of just creep their hand up a little bit and say, yes, I, I don't mind writing. Uh, the problem is that they haven't had any real formal um, uh, training in in writing up their science. And so the only place they can they can get their information as to how to do it is to read articles and and copy them. And as you say, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there that's giving them the bad a bad uh, bad examples. And in fact, so much so that if you think of uh, Ninety uh, percent of the of the articles that you see in 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 in, in the literature uh, is written by people who didn't really like writing it anyway. You, we've got ourselves a, a perpetual problem, and we've got to get we we've got to cut that off and start talking about what makes a, a good a good article. Uh, what makes a, a, a an article something that people will want to read? And use that as the norm, and not just the, all of that literature or ninety percent of that literature that's out there, where people have uh, have written it to get it out there, uh, rather than um, actually to convince people uh, that this is something they this is a story they should be reading. And in fact, I use the word story uh, quite a lot when I'm talking to people about writing because there are so many stories in science, in social science, in every sort of science. There are, they're, 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 they're all stories, but if we, and we all like stories. We've liked stories since we were little kids. And we, we um, uh, suddenly say, ah, oh, but that looks too simple. We've got, to, we've got to complicate the thing because I read a paper the other day, couldn't understand most of it until I spent a lot of time sorting out what all these words were and what, what, uh, what how, you know, mixing up what was on page three with page one and getting them together and all that sort of stuff. I, uh, 
So next time when I write a story, that's that's the way I'm going to do it, make it all complex so people have to think about it uh, for a long period. People are not going to think about it for a long period. Most people don't want to read articles at all. Uh, they've got other things to do. And, and, and you, you, you really got to start off an article getting somebody to, to actually want to read it in the first place. Uh, and I talk about titles. In, uh, you know, if I can push that a little further, I talk about titles. It, it's not something just to say in this field, this is the field that uh, this, this article is, is going to tell you about when you, when you get in to read it. It's, it's saying this is what you're going to learn if uh, you read my article uh, and it gets you into the, into the body of the text and that's what the title's done its job. And, and we see so many titles that are so dull and uninteresting, the effect of A on B, uh, where you just substitute A and B and there's your title, that completely useless uh, in terms of, of getting somebody excited about this story that they're going to read. So it's it's uh, a lot of the the uh, sensible stuff, in my view, in scientific writing is to is to manufacture a story, not a not a not a made up story, of course, but a story uh, that that uh, deals with the the uh, with the uh, the facts. So to speak, but but um, and certainly not straying from any of that uh, any of that uh, uh, evidence that you, you 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 put behind the story, but but telling it in a way that is exciting and as as uh, uh, hardly nerve tingling, but certainly exciting as possible. And uh, uh, I I still keep running into people who who think, oh no, but that that. You wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to put that in as as a as a, as a scientific article because uh, uh, people won't think it's good science if it happens to be a story, uh, which is just complete nonsense in my view. Telling telling stories in science is what real communication in science is about. Yeah, and I mean, as as you say there with the title, for example, I mean, setting the scene for the story, if you like. Um, you say it's done its job if, right? And and I think this is this is one of those key ideas, the function of what it is that your text or the parts of your text for an article are meant to be doing. And exactly. if you actually yeah, and if you actually think about what it is that you want to happen after each sentence, after each paragraph, in the entire introduction and so on, well, then you start to notice that, yeah, there's a job to be done here. And that's why I think one of the ways in to continue on this theme of helping people in research communication, one of the ways in to, to get people to realize that, you know, um, the majority choices being made out there in the scientific literature um, are actually not the best ways to get those jobs done, right? Those jobs lie there at, one way or the other, whether or not people, uh, you know, do a great job at uh, finishing a title or, you know, a mediocre job. It's, it's, it's not going to change the function of the title. It's just going to change how well the performance of that person's doing of it is. And it's, it, so you'd want to not take as a norm necessarily what you are always reading, but what is behind it? Yeah. What do you want from a title? And you can judge from how well or how poorly somebody has fulfilled that function what you want to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, when your when your title is sitting up there with another twenty titles in this edition of the particular journal, that you are in direct competition with the other nineteen people for the limited time of the reader. And if your title can can say uh, can talk about your story in a way that says to the reader, "Hang on, I better perhaps." I'm, Perhaps I better just go and have a, a look at the uh, at the uh, maybe the abstract or the introduction. Uh, maybe I should just look at that. Um, for all the work you put into writing up a paper, which takes quite a long time, and you know, so I use the word writing up. The the um, uh, if you can get uh, uh, see. Instead of having 1% of people who read your title actually go and read something in the body of your text, if you can get two people to, to, to be excited enough to go and read something in the body of the text, you've doubled the value of your, of your writing. Uh, you, you value added it by 100%. And so therefore a title is a very, very uh, useful thing to take a lot of time over. Yeah, and I think this idea of functions is one thing. I think another idea on improving upon the literature to really motivate researchers so that they start to think, yeah, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll start to set my own standard when I write instead of just, you know, following along as it's supposed to be done, as I so often hear the word supposed to. Yeah, but aren't you supposed to? <laughs> I, I generally tell the people I work with, you're not supposed to do anything. <laughs> you know? um, one, of the, one of the other ways is to say how you can literally, and this brings us to the hypothesis, how you can literally improve the quality of your research by improving the communication of your research. I mean, that is a you know, cause effect sort of um, situation that we're dealing with. You know, um, if if what you uh, really want, say, a results section uh, to get across is that result one and result one A and one B have this relation to each other, this relation in significance to the question that you're asking, if if you don't write it that way, then they don't have that significance. I mean, just just as one sort of random example that I'm talking about, I mean, another sort of random example would be in the methods section. If it's not apparent how you did what you did, then it's almost as if you didn't do it or you could have done it any old way. I mean, that's just poor science, bad objectivity. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's just following the... Uh, Following a recipe instead of instead of thinking about what you you got to do and and the, this word expectation is um, and you you introduced this whole uh, podcast with with that idea the the, the you know the concept of of uh, uh, you know expecting stuff uh, as you as you write and uh, it, it uh, at the sentence level you're saying we put the important stuff. And in the in the, um, in the in the topic, not the topic part of the sentence, but the what did you call it? The the um, uh, well, the yeah, the pro- the prominent place, the information focus, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, and, and by by cleverly constructing that your sentences in that sort of way, and making sure that the introductory part is is reasonably comfortable to the reader, so that they 
they move into the new information at the end of the sentence. And, and I'm not sure where that came from, but I, the first I saw was in Joseph Williams' book uh, on style and uh, and grace. Uh, and uh, and also Goffin and Swan both talked about um, uh, expectation. And so you you start the sentence with, with something or other to, to, uh, to say you can expect the, the second half of this sentence to be giving you some information about this. And uh, at the sentence level, that works well, but actually it, it works at several other levels as well. At the paragraph level, uh, I came to realise that the, the, the classical form of a paragraph where you have a topic sentence some build-up material in the middle and a concluding sentence is the ideal way, and I, I get uh, quite batty about it and say it's the only way you should be writing up your discussion, for example, because if you say this is the topic I wanted to I want to raise with you, um, you the reader, uh, uh, and you can, and this is what I want to conclude about that that that. Um, particular topic, uh, and the bit in the middle is justifies me that conclusion, and that's what the paragraph is about. That's what um, good scientific writing is about. It's actually saying I'm taking this little um, uh, aspect of the work I've um, I've described up there in the results, and I'm going to draw a conclusion to it. Uh, so many people write up stuff and don't draw conclusions, which means it's just a frustrating piece of, of gobbledygook unless you draw conclusions. But if you take the discipline of writing it in a paragraph way, you can make the, the paragraph give you the expectation of what we're going to talk about. And we're not going to talk about anything else but just this item that we've that I've opened up in the topic sentence of the paragraph that's all we're going to talk about, and this is what I'm going to conclude about that. And then you go on to the next paragraph and do the same thing until you until you completed your your discussion. Um, that means if you do that, then nobody can, can accuse you of waffling, and yet and you're talking about your work, not not uh, not somebody else's work. You only use other people's work uh, and other people's um, conclusions and, and whatever to support yours, not the other way around. Uh, that also is one of the one of the um, you know important things that that makes the thing flow well. But when we get start, we can start with the topic. Uh, sorry, with the, with the title, which says if you read this uh, article, uh, you are going to find something important out, and and and, and uh, um, you will have really you will have been. Made uh, put in it the most important thing that you want to say, either the, the important conclusion you're going to draw from your the article that you're writing, or the uh, the important result that you're going to get from the writing, whichever you think is the most important. Then you go on to the introduction, and this is where the hypothesis comes in, and and where I think uh, scientists, uh, and I mean all scientists, social scientists, and all others. When they start talking in a scientific way through hypotheses, just so happen to have the very essence of a an expectation, because a hypothesis really is an expectation. 
That is, if we do something in a certain way, we're going to find this this sort of result. That's what we expect. So it's an expectation. And if you then uh, use the hypothesis uh, that you would normally use as a as a as a scientist uh, to use it as a a uh, means of developing expectation in your reader when you're doing it as a as a as a writer. Um, you've got a ready-made way of, and in fact, I think it's the best way of of um, creating that expectation of what people are going to be looking for when they look at the way you did it, because they'll say you're doing the, you know, your your methodology is is to, to get you towards this expectation. Your results are going to be judged whether they accept the expectation or they or they dispute it, uh, and your discussion is going to be talking about that expectation again. So you've got you've got a, a fantastic way through a hypothesis of, of creating that expectation. So regardless of whether it's it's the the part of the scientific method, uh, it, it it ought to be a part of the scientific writing because it it it, it does a slightly different thing in that it gets the reader to expect something and you start delivering that expectation in the rest of the rest of the paper. So at three levels, four levels, at the sentence level, at the paragraph level, at the at the article level when you get to the introduction so that it actually is a hypothesis and, 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 and justifies that hypothesis based on the literature that is around um, and the title. At the, all those four levels you are creating an expectation which is means that the reader's going to be sort of saying, I'll just turn over and check out how that worked out and so on until they get to the end. In many cases they don't get there, but at least they get a long way towards because most people don't read all of or that very few people read all all of any paper uh, I've discovered. Um, they they read the bits they want until they get the information they want and then they, they, they leave a lot of it out. But, uh, but they will be, if you do it, well, the bits they do read will will tell them about the paper and tell them about you, and you you've got more chance of being cited and all the other things you you might like to have happen in your scientific life. It's revolutionary what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, I'm praising you, but I have to also retract the praise almost because it's revolutionary, but it shouldn't be revolutionary because I mean, what you're building off of is the hypothesis. Yes, and. Yeah. You know, there was there was a day when people thought that that was the essence of science, and yet one of my guests of over the past year, Bradley Alger, has in a sense had to write a book, a very interesting book, which I'm sure you'd also enjoy, David, um, the defense of the scientific hypothesis. Um, we've gotten to the state where we need to defend it for some reason. We've gotten to the state where. Um, I work closely with computer scientists, biologists, and also economists sometimes. And of the three groups, the place where I can almost be certain that I'm going to run into somebody saying the word hypothesis is actually with the economists. <laughs> because I think I think what it is, is they think they're being scientific that way. But it's very odd that the biologists and, and the computer scientists have, let's say, moved on from that dusty word in a sense. Yeah, well, I, I I think I say in the book there somewhere that that, that you can think of a hypothesis as a, a synonym for for an expectation uh, or a prediction, 
or a piece of reasoning. And any one of those, and you don't have to use the word hypothesis if, if as you know, if you say it's, it's, it sounds a bit sort of scientifically trite these days, but in fact, you can use any one of those expressions and it says exactly the same thing. It's an expectation. But I do find that, that uh, or have found over the, over the time that some people um, say, or particularly social scientists say, well, we do qualitative research, not quantitative research, and in qualitative research, you don't need a hypothesis. And I say that's absolute utter nonsense. You, 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 the purpose of the hypothesis is to create expectation, and if you can think of a better way of creating expectation uh, without a, than a hypothesis, then by all means use it. And at that stage, they pull out of the argument because they, they don't have another way. They just want to write an introduction, for example, that... that uh, draws on a few random bits of information and, 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 and puts it down there to fill up the first page. Um, yeah, and that's and that's really the point. I mean, just what you say right there, this this random bits of information, because that is how you operationalize the hypothesis so well in the book. And it, I mean, that alone is is the selling point of the book, amongst so many others. But if if if, if I had to say to my listeners. Are you a researcher and do you want to write better introductions? Well, then read about the hypothesis in David's book because it's like you give us a view of the uh, of the introduction, for example. I mean, you've just also just laid it out for us how it affects the entire article, actually, all four levels, as you say. Um, but just in the introduction itself, your view of the introduction is a very tight, clearly defined piece of writing. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting that. And, and the reason it is is because of the use of the hypothesis for communicative purposes. I mean, very many of the scientists that I work with, they talk about introductions in such ways of, well, that's the way all papers begin, and I need to begin there. And there's a bit of an argument for that, but let's push it aside for the moment. Other people, very wrong, actually, say things like, yeah, but I need to start at a more general level before I can really get down to the point. And and, and this is where your idea of expectation comes in so so helpfully. I mean, they're confusing expectation with suspense. Yeah. They're two very different things. Yeah. You know, I mean, expectation is you actually know what's coming. Suspense is you're still looking for the thread. Yeah, and, and that's, if I were, if I, were, you know, if we were starting off, Fifty years, sorry, five uh, centuries ago, and, and and how to write a scientific paper. I would say, write the hypothesis first, and then justify it afterwards. Because uh, one of the little dangers you have is in the justification, getting the background for the justification of your hypothesis. Uh, people aren't quite sure what what this is a background to, and. Uh, uh, so they're reading it and saying, I've got to store all this information in my head or some of it, and I'm not sure which bits I've got to store in my head. And, I, it, and when I get down to the hypothesis, which is the standard way you do it at the, at the end of the introduction rather than at the beginning, then then um, uh, then it'll all become clear. Well, of course, if you've got a one page of, of, of material that doesn't seem to hang together in any way, um, you forget it all. I mean, your short-term memory of a reader is pretty, pretty, pretty short, and uh, uh, so I, I would have the hypothesis first. But but convention says you can't do that, so I've I've had to give in. But 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 uh, uh, you know, for that reason, if you're just giving people material and saying, "Hang on to all this, and it'll all become clear at some other time," you know, a couple of pages further on, 
then you, you're very naive about how readers uh, think about things. I keep telling people, yeah, and readers are just like you. They're lazy, they're, they're, uh, they're busy, they're all sorts of things, and uh, they've got the same problems. And uh, as Alan Alda said when he's saying something about, uh, I think it was people um, people who buy and sell, uh, you know, uh, he said, um, I, uh, I don't know much about selling, but he said, I know a lot about buying because I've been doing this all the time. He said, so I'm, I've got 50% of that, that relationship sorted out. So if you're going to be a seller trying to sell me something, then uh, then think of think of yourself as a buyer and see whether you would buy from somebody who says what you <laughs> uh, what you have to sell in the way you you're saying it. And uh, it, it's pretty much the same way. You, you you you've got to keep things in simple order. Yeah. I, and I mean, it's like, uh, as you say, we're not allowed to put the hypothesis in sentence one. And yeah. maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe it is. I don't know. But there, it doesn't mean that sentence one can't relate actually directly to the hypothesis. Oh. Right. I mean, in a sense, you can write your introduction literally backwards. You know, I mean, as you, as, as you say, I mean, you've got to formulate your hypothesis um, and essentially you want the introduction to stay with the introduction and and clearly right now we're deep inside the other part of the I- interview that I wanted to get into which is just talking about the scientific article itself but you then can make everything of the context essentially be inexorably leading up to that statement of hypothesis and that's and that's and that that becomes your standard not what other people are doing but what you've formulated as a hypothesis, that becomes your standard as to what you include in your, what is your context? What do you include in there? Exactly. And, and it, you've got, it, uh, you, you don't actually build up your hypothesis. You were saying earlier, you, you do it in reverse. I mean, the main thing is to have the hypothesis sorted out. And that's a big intellectual exercise to get a hypothesis that fits all the known data. Um, and and it's still worthwhile doing, uh, worthwhile testing. Um, that's that's a big intellectual exercise. But I say that once you've done that intellectual exercise, you've probably covered most of the uh, the thinking you're going to have to do for the rest of your paper. But in the introduction, as you as you said earlier, it's it's you can judge once you know what the hypothesis is and what you're going to write as a hypothesis. You can judge every sentence and every word in every sentence, if you like, of your introduction as to whether it is actually leading to that hypothesis or is just a bit of a bit of fluff that you've you've put in there, because every bit of fluff you put in there is 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 uh, making your introduction less uh, enjoyable to the reader, and so you you get a very you very. Uh, uh, straightforward way of of, of, um, of deciding the material you're going to put in your introduction and and not only that the references you make to people if you think Joe Blow happens to be a heavy in your field and so on and if you don't put Joe Blow's name in there you're going to be uh, you know people are going to think you haven't read the literature if Joe Blow's particular work doesn't contribute to to the thinking behind your hypothesis or the reasoning behind your hypothesis, then Joe just doesn't get a Guernsey in your in your particular introduction, and uh, uh, that's a decision that that people are making all the time. Should I put this reference in or that one? If the reference is going to support 
the arguments leading to your hypothesis. It could go in there, and if it doesn't, forget it. Don't put it in there, and you'll end up with a concise but very clear uh, or as clear as possible introduction. Yeah, and this is, again, selling, buying and selling, to pick up that idea. I mean, this is, again, what sells your uh, uh, book, I think, to so many researchers who are really trying to write that introduction or any other part of, of the um, article to know, you know, what is the standard? What is the, you know, ruler against which I'm measuring the information going in and coming out again? Mm-hmm. Um, you, for example, <laughs> say the abstract, the abstract. I mean, I've read so much about abstracts and heard so much grief about abstracts and so on. And you say, well, you know, with the hypothesis, give your abstract 15 minutes. So you should have, you know, a fairly finalized version of it. <laughs> I think that's going to knock over a number of people out there. Well, that's right. In fact, I, I do do this with, when, when we're doing uh, writing papers communally uh, with with groups. I say, at the end of this time, I don't know what research you're going to be writing up in your papers, but I'll bet that on on the afternoon of the last day, I'll be able to write the abstract of your paper in uh, in 10 minutes. Uh, and uh, you know, that sounds a bit silly, but in fact... Uh, you, it's got to consist of four parts. It's got to consist of why you did it, which is you were testing that hypothesis. Yeah, how you did it, which is going to be a very brief thing of, of the key things that you needed to do to test the hypothesis. The results are only those results that are really relate to the hypothesis and not all the other bits and pieces that you might be talking about, but, but they're not as important. And the key conclusions. Uh, you've already written all of those and you virtually just transplant the material from, um, what do you do? You copy and paste all your material and stick it up the front and it's an abstract and it's, it's better than most abstracts which, which uh, don't include all those four components. <laughs> That's lovely. Uh, one, one last point on the article which um, I certainly wanted to broach with you. I mean, there's so much in the book. Um, again, read, uh, listeners, I, I, I encourage you, if this is your area, if this is help you need, go out there and, and, and buy the book. But uh, one that I wanted to quickly broach with you there was um, your talk about the results section brought in for me very many things that were, you know, really enlightening. The the concept that the discussion and the results should be kept apart um, is 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 um, you know a discussion which I find uh, very enlightening. The other one, for example, which is a perennial problem for people: text and graphics of all sort. Right? What is the function of which, and how do you perform them so that you end up with a thread running through your results? I mean, that in particular, I found quite. Quite interesting, and I, I wonder if you could maybe just share briefly um, on that topic of text and graphics. Yes, well, we we, we talked earlier about uh, all of the sort of people have these say these rules that you must do. Or this is the way you got to write scientific papers and so on. Um, you can take that down to is uh, to just three things that that a scientific writing is different from other writing in that all scientific writing has got to be precise. Um, anything that's wishy-washy is, is definitely not scientific writing. It's got to be um, uh, clear so that if two people read the same piece of text and get a different view of it, um, 
in other words, it's ambiguous. That is not good scientific writing and it's got to be as concise as possible. Um, and uh, so uh, it's clarity, uh, sorry, uh, precision, clarity and brevity. We'll forget the brevity for a moment, but but the... the uh, but you don't have to do that all the time. You can sometimes to make something very clear. Uh, you put lots of little details and things like that in that make it precise. At the same time, you you um, it, it it's harder to make it clear. And the lovely thing about a a, a the graphs and and tables is that there is your uh, uh, obligation to precision. It's all in there to whatever level of precision you want it to be. But once you've got it in there, when you get to the text, you can now ignore, not ignore it, but but you can actually take the key issues out of the out of that that precise table or that precise graph or whatever. Uh, you can take those issues out and pick out the the important points and where they're leading in a way that if you didn't have the graph and the tables there, you couldn't do it um, because it wouldn't be precise. But having done that, you use the tables for precision and you use the text for clarity. <clears throat> and and uh, by making those two things work hand in hand, um, you, can, you can actually put them into their right perspective. Well, thank you very much for that, David. That is David Lindsay, and his book, Scientific Writing Equals Thinking in Words, is out with Cyro Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to David. Goodbye. Goodbye, and thank you. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>